Today I'm with Jack Deere, current ACT paramedic, former ADF and Afghanistan veteran, who has recently deployed as a paramedic to Ukraine with a non-government organisation, Frontline Medics. Welcome to Care Under Fire, Jack, and thank you so much for coming on. Hey, thanks. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's a true honour. I know it all started with the army for you pretty soon out of school so tell me about those younger years and what led you to join the army i joined when i was 17. um my early years pre going into defense were were spent at boarding school for the most part i'm a bit of a product of the institution did did okay at school but was pretty keen on joining the adf um in my later years of, of school uh, and, and was driven to go down that path. Uni just didn't seem like the right fit for me at that stage. And, and I was a bit like, at the time, you know, I, I finished school 2008. The conflicts in um, Iraq and Afghanistan were, were almost at the height of their uh, operational uh, tempo. And you were seeing a lot of um, uh, media reports about that. And I think that maybe influenced me because I, I think I wanted to to get involved with that, had a had a few delusions of grandeur, and um, <laughs> uh, thought I'd I'd uh, chase a, a life in defence. Um, finished school twenty two thousand eight, and um, joined up at the age of seventeen. Went into the cavalry. Uh, I'm not sure why I, I went cavalry. Um, it's a bit of a mystery to me. I think at the stage um, that I was going through the recruitment process. Somebody said cavalry deploy all the time, almost back to back, and they definitely were um, back in those years. So I think that might have been a bit of a, a driver. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I went into cav, um, loved it. Uh, it's, it's you know, any career in defence is a bit of a love hate relationship. You um, you know, you, you struggle through. A lot of training, a lot of hard times going bush, and and, and training in pretty um, uh, rough conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes you makes you a good soldier, and you um you, uh, you you look back on it fondly. So I definitely remember the good times a lot more. Maybe the effect of a bit of the rose tinted glasses. Yeah, yeah, and you know all that fun in Darwin. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I I um. I finished my IETs and uh, got told there was about 20 of us that um, our options were Brisbane or Darwin and uh, we'd have to paper, scissors, rock, uh, who goes where. And i tell you what, I've, I've never bet so much on, uh, on one round of paper, scissors, rock and I lost and I spent the next four years in Darwin. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a thing to swallow. Darwin's fun if you like fishing and drinking, but... That gets True. a bit old after a little while, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? It's also uh, it's a it's a rough training area. Mount Bundy, at, uh, yeah. Mount Bundy yeah. in the dust, in the red dirt. <laughs> so you did? Did you do ASLAV and, or just PMV? What was your skill set there? So at that time, um, I was two cav B squadron. Um, we were operating on the ASLAV platform. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a lot of the time in the early years as a scout. Um, uh, and then sort of went into becoming a driver and heading up that sort of career progression. Um, uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time out in Mount Bundy and uh, I think it, essentially it must have been just the, the way the operations fell and the tempo at that time that 
Um, there weren't any deployments in the first few, three years of my career. There was, um, we were sending people over to Iraq for sec debt, um, but I think we were on the, um, the resting ro rotation um, when I joined her. And we'd already just had a few uh, of our um, squadrons, I think C squadron come back from uh, a deployment. Is there anything in those early times where you had interaction with the medics and thought, hey, this is a cool job, or were you pretty set on doing your PMV driver stuff? Not really. Look, you know, the only interaction I think we had was going to the RAP. Mm -hmm. um, admittedly, the only sort of medical training I'd had um, prior to my first deployment was the basic first aid training that we uh, received um, at Kapuka. And I'll, I'll be honest, I absolutely hated it. I was not a fan. Um, yeah. I was not good at it, for starters. And I, I have it burnt into my memory, you know, the, the whole D is for danger and you'd recite gloves on, where's the snake? Yeah. And I, I'll, be, I'll be honest, I thought it was a bit of a joke. They definitely weren't teaching us care of a battle casualty or um, tailored sort of medical skills for actual war fighting. Mm. Um, so... As far as um, medicine goes, I didn't really have any um, skills. Um, we did a bit of pre-deployment for training in Almuthar Air Base um, before our commencement of our deployment. So that, that, that comes on to my deployment, which is um, finally in 2013, I, I was a part of ATF-2. I was deploying as a PMV crew commander as part of 2CAV Task Force, um, providing the... Um, uplift for NATO mentors who were mentoring the um, Afghan National Army Officers Academy cadets, mm -hmm. Sandhurst in the Sand. Uh, yeah, when we finally got on that deployment, it was a bit of a whirlwind getting into country. Definitely went in there, bushy-eyed, sort of didn't know what to expect, although thankfully I had a few good corporals who had many deployments under their belt. Even though I was deploying for the first time, I was, I was still a crew commander and had um, responsibilities. And so I was a, it was a sharp learning curve. Um, but a beautiful country. Love the work, love working um, with the uh, other NATO forces, particularly the Scotch Dragoon Guard. And uh, a few of our um, mentors were from New Zealand as well. Um, so we had a good mix, a good crowd. And uh, the work, while a bit nonness, um, was definitely a thrill uh, as opposed to training out at Mount Bundy. Yeah. Um, so I loved it. My first appointment, I, I kind of got the bug to, to go to the Middle East and, and that sort of vibe and that world. Yeah. So you're in Kabul and then you're, you're basically escorting people out in your PMV so they can do their mentoring mission. Did you have other roles there, like force protection and that too? Mm. Yeah, so we, we would cycle through uh, moving the mentors from the, uh, it was known as Camp Karga. Um, there was a NATO base that we would, um, we essentially lived and, and slept at. And during the day, we would drive the mentors out to the barracks and the training area for the um, Afghan army officers. Yeah. Um, uh, we then also cycled between doing uh, road moves from the Camp Karga, from Camp Karga to um, Kaya, which is uh, the Kabul International Airport. 
uh, if you, for those of your listeners that um, are familiar with uh, Kabul itself, you've essentially got uh, the city in a, in a bit of a basin, and on the north side you've got the airport, and it's got a, a military component on the north, or it did back in 2013, um, and a civilian side south. Camp Karga was approximately, I'd say, 20 k's um, out to the west. And we would do road moves from um, the airport to the camp and, and back again. Uh, so we would do that. And then we were also cycling through uh, being a, a part of the QRF um, team. Um, we yeah. would share that responsibility with the um, Scottish Dragoon Guards as well. And during uh, my deployment, we, um, we did experience a green on blue incident. Um, it happened, uh, say, on the tail, uh, the tail end of, of the deployment. An incident occurred where a, a, a laptop was found by the Afghan army training staff and there was this immediate panic that uh, we didn't know where this laptop came from. It had been essentially picked up by the, the contracted cleaners and uh, they tried to smuggle it out. They were caught by the outer perimeter Afghan guards. So uh, that sent off uh, alarm bells. The um, The the NATO sort of team were very concerned that it might have crypto or information on it um, that they didn't want to get out. So they essentially um, sent two New Zealand mentors um, and a, a section of of our uh, five RER guys, grunts, to, to escort them as a bit of a guardian angel force over there and re- recover the, um, the laptop. When they were... Uh, approaching the the lines, the um, the Afghan uh, cadets lines, they um, they were engaged by a single uh, male who essentially um, took his M16 and just opened a clip uh, at our guys. His motives, I don't think, have ever really been established, uh, but he managed to hit one of our New Zealand mentors in the leg and then was quickly neutralized by our, our five RR grunts. Yeah. Um, that was a, a big incident. I, I was on QRF that day. I was sitting waiting and we heard the, um, the rounds pop off and one of the coolies ran in and we were quickly throwing our gear on and getting into the PMVs. I don't think I ever racked the, uh, the Mag 58 faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, we quickly gunned it um, to the to the front gate and we're ready to roll out and go get our guys. There was a bit of a delay getting out of the base. Obviously, we were locking down and, and whoever the command and control team were at that time were trying to establish what was going on. And finally, we did get out. We, we moved from our base over to the, the lines for the um, officer cadets and um, picked up the uh, New Zealand mentor um, at the time, we had an, an amazing medic with us. He definitely uh, left an influence on me because that day uh, he essentially sprung to action. He got control of the New Zealand uh, sergeant, put a tourniquet on his leg, I believe, and then um, it was, it's all a bit of a blur, but we, we essentially just picked him all up and we moved back to, back to our safety in the... Um, in the base uh, where he was then stabilized with the nursing officer. And then shortly after that, 
um, we had to then move him uh, to the helicopter landing zone where he was being medevaced. Um, so just definitely led to um, a change in our operational mindset after that. There was yeah. now this fractured relationship with the, the new Afghan army. Prior to that, I think we'd fostered a pretty good working relationship, but then, you know, doubt had sort of set, set into our minds and we didn't particularly feel safe working with them. Any mentoring operations were suspended for quite some time and then uh, uh, we slowly returned to our normal operations. Frustrating when you don't know what the motivation was, if that was shared by others or if this was just one rogue guy, if he'd been impacted by the Taliban or, you know, yeah. this Kiwi I... just defended him for some random reason and he decided to open fire. Like, yeah. There was, yeah. was rumours going around that he was drug affected at the time. There was yeah. also rumours after the fact that um, the Taliban attended his uh, funeral. I think they were all... The, the, the truth behind those rumours is maybe not there. But, look, on a medical sense, I I, I felt absolutely unprepared uh, to provide care. And, and now being a clinician, I can look back on it and say that, um, yeah, I probably wouldn't have handled that situation very well if I'd been the one providing care. Thankfully, we had such an amazing medic with us. And I believe that experience later influenced my decision to go into paramedicine. Yeah. Um, it was a pivotal moment, I think, in my in my life and what I wanted to do. Just seeing some medic ace it and think, well, shit. <laughs> That's it. I think yeah. I think he just appeared super calm. Yeah. Um, you know, he he seemed to just know exactly what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it, and it is it is I guess the perspective of um, the patients we go to now, you know. It, on the exterior, you, you appear calm, but on the interior, you're, um, you're, you know, you've got a thousand thoughts going through your mind. And it's a bit of a skill to, um, to maintain that composure. And on that day, he definitely did that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's that um, duck, duck swimming on the water analogy, looking That's all peaceful, it. and the, the feet underneath are just going hell for leather. <laughs> yeah. So you got back to Australia after that deployment. And pretty soon left uh, the army and left CAV. I did. I think I, I look. I, I deployed at the age of twenty-one. I got back back to Darwin during my deployment. I'd been given a, a, um, a posting order, and I was to be sent down to uh, Edinburgh. Uh, sadly, I was the only one to to get that posting, and all my mates on that trip were going, were staying in in Darwin, and then later going to Townsville. I think that change of scenery um, and noting the fact that I was, you know, uh, at that stage, 22. I think I was keen to have a change. Um, I wanted to go experience um, travel uh, at the, you know, the first five years of my my career in the Army. You know, you, you were um, subject to what the Army wanted to do with you. And I think I was, I was jonesing for a bit of autonomy. So, yeah. look, I, I got out. I got out in 20... 2014, went immediately over to Canada and did a, a year at the at Whistler uh, doing the ski bunny life. 
I, I bumped into a few ski patrol guys and uh, had a few beers with them and, and they said that they were all paramedics and it just <laughs> was a, a drive that maybe, hey, look, I could see myself doing ski patrolling. And so I, I decided I'd, I'd spend my money, my deployment money on a bit of education, um, invest in myself and, and go to South Africa um, where I wanted to complete a um, remote medical technician course. Um, and during that course, um, I was able to uh, ride along uh, for several weeks um, doing frontline uh, response, uh, and it was incredible. Definitely got the bug then and there. Um, going to back-to-back stabbings, shootings, um, traumatic arrests, the like of which like I haven't seen in, in, in my entire career in uh in australia Mm. it's it's a different world yeah i've been to um south africa to johannesburg there's a lot of high fences around all the hotels for a reason there's a lot of armed guards around how was that being in south africa on road did ambulance have protection did they well look as a student we were given kevlar vests and uh pepper spray and a taser wow um, and told look if you need to defend yourself do it if things go awry just drop your gear and head up into the hills um and once you get to the because cape down's quite a uh, easy place to get to know uh, geographically just head up into the hills call for um for help but yeah, so this Cape Town is, is, South Africa is the Wild West. Yeah, um, it's it's a very dangerous place. It's beautiful, stunning, um, and the people there are, are very lovely, very um, direct. I think is how I would put their sort of behaviour. Clinically, they're very on point. Um, I don't think you could find a better paramedic in the world outside of South Africa, just because they are dealing with such crazy traumatic work yeah um but the course itself look i remember doing the first time i pushed chest was on a 14 year old um who'd been stabbed several times in the township he then legged it to one of the fire stations and in the course he bled out uh, quite a bit and collapsed at the fire station the uh fireys worked on him and we arrived and, and that was one of the first big jobs i went to and i was yeah, uh, blown away at a the age of the the, the patient, um, as well as like the amount of trauma he'd suffered. These sort of things blow my mind. Like from a military perspective, you think you know what you're doing is relatively dangerous in a war zone in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and that. But you have the whole protection of you know you have guardian angels, you have force protection, you have a QRF on your side, you're heavily armed, you're not treating a patient in isolation in a laneway, relying on your own intuition to pick up if your life's in danger. So I think go to you, number one, but also like as a student, while you're still focused and you kind of might have a bit of tunnel vision doing your clinical skills and learning the paramedic piece you've still got to maintain that whole situational awareness in a really dynamic complex location so Mm. what a training ground yeah and it's it's definitely a skill that you um, hone and you have to work on um it comes with time even now i i still go to jobs uh, in my in my in my day job as a paramedic in Canberra, 
um, that um, have an element of, of danger that you're that either if you're the primary and you are tunnel visioned on, on treating the patient, you don't necessarily see. And um, so it's not just in, in these crazy parts of the world. You can definitely mm. fall into the trap of, of becoming complacent and uh, not identifying dangers uh, here in Australia. But um, yeah, look, uh, the, the experience in Cape Town was incredible. From that course, I was given a... Um, uh, a qualification that was actually a UK-based qualification as an EMT. Um, and as part of that, I had to then go and get employment in London uh, to get some clinical hours. So I picked up my life. I was a free agent and I, I went over to London, got a got a job with Falk. Um, at that time, they would just acquired a, a small sort of uh, ambulance company called um, Frontline Medical Response. And we were doing um, triple zero calls, frontline work, supplementing the London Ambulance Service. We're working out of East London in, in Allgate, which, again, <laughs> another dodgy part of London. Yeah, um, right. has a bit of a reputation. And I guess that was the first time I was, I was getting paid employment as an EMT um, and, and sort of cutting my teeth and, and developing my, my skills. What made you decide to do all this overseas rather than kind of in Australia, where you know, in your comfort zone, I guess. Uh, look, I, maybe because my sister, um, she'd finished uni, she was off traveling, doing some crazy trips abroad, and I, I think I was a bit envious, and I wanted to have that experience myself. Uh, I wanted to, to to travel, see the world, get a bit of uh, a few miles under my belt, and. I think I think the, the one of the best things about the military, at least going in and then coming out of the military, and again, this is not everyone's experience, but I, I definitely saw the military as a safety net. Once I got out, I thought, you know what, I can I can achieve anything. I can go and do anything because at the end of the day, I know that the army's there and they'll take me back if I need to come back. And I thought yeah. that was a huge motivator or um, empowerment. Uh, a means of empowerment to then go spend the money on, on chasing uh, education and, and travels abroad. So mm. uh, for the for the um, listeners that are thinking about getting into defence or, or getting out of defence and are a bit concerned or apprehensive about what their, their life is going to be like after defence, uh, I think of it as a motivator. You can go to uni and, and try and study that hard degree because at the end of the day, you know, if you if you're able to get back in, that you you know you can go back to that life. So I I definitely tried to use it as a, as a, a motivator. Or, but while I was in London, uh, I was having a great time. I uh, definitely didn't want to stop at EMT. I was keen to get up and, and study paramedicine. I actually approached uh, Greenwich University to study a uh, to become a paramedic and, and register with um, HCPC. But before I could do that, I was going through the um, recruitment process. I, before I could get accepted and start that, I was approached by um, a mate who um, suggested I apply for a job back in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I loved my deployment and, and was definitely keen to go back. Um, so uh, I applied and I, I managed to get a gig as a close protection officer at the Australian Embassy, essentially looking after the diplomats. Back in Kabul, yep. the, the city that I knew, I, I was immensely lucky, lucky to get that job and I ended up 
staying in Kabul for the next four years, um, working as a as a security slash medic um, for the embassy. So this is 2017. The NATO withdrawal largely occurred in that time. What was the reception like on the street? And did that change a lot from your, you know, your previous time there in 2014? Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I finished up in in London in 2017. Took on the contract. Went over to the embassy. The the early years, I think it was pretty stock standard. The sort of wind down didn't happen till 2021, 2022. Um, so for those early years, you know, it was. I essentially started off as the static, as a static security guard commander, managing a, a, a workforce of Afghan guards and, and Nepali guards. Um, and uh, I was training them in first aid, essentially facilitating the daily life of the, um, the diplomats from DFAP. The like, life there was good. I loved it. It was a, a two-month two months in country and then one month out of country. We did have a few medical emergencies that I was called on for. We would have just the the basic non-traumatic medical emergencies. I remember one of our Afghan contractors working on a roof, and you can imagine that they um, they weren't exactly abiding by the safety at heights guidelines that Australia has. And this, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this poor Afghan um, contractor, he uh, he slipped and fallen and about three floors and um, ended up getting a neck of femur fracture. So it was called to him. We kind of stabilised him, did a basic um, traction splint and because he wasn't uh, an Australian or a diplomat, he was pretty much thrown into a, a taxi uh, and taken to the local Afghan hospital uh, and then yeah. from there uh, his care was taken uh, taken over by the the local health system but in addition to that we did have a few emergencies with our australian staff we had uh one of our facilities managers have a bit of a medical emergency he uh he previously had a triple a he'd uh was very very lucky that his previous triple a was only a, a mild leak and uh he'd been patched up at another embassy in, in africa in Nairobi. Recovered and then he managed to get uh, onto the contract in, in Kabul. One day he was down at the gym working out um, when he, he essentially had a syncope, had uh, essentially the same symptoms that he experienced in his previous AAA. So from there we had to facilitate his move out of out of the embassy to uh, the airport and then his evacuation. It, it definitely put me under the pump because you know we, we didn't have access to any imaging we, we essentially had to make a gut call and, and um, he was very much apprehensive about leaving and, and, and going to seek further medical care um, because he knew that if if it was nothing um, he would maybe have questions about his career and his posting so he didn't really want to go um, but not having x-ray vision um, based off the information I had, I kind of had to um, send him off. And at one point, we were literally throwing in the AED with him, and I was I was very much concerned that he was having a, a leaky AAA. Um, yeah. And, uh, 
Uh, he was quite diabetic. I said that to him, and he was. Do you oh. say like uh, you know the mortality rate for a triple A is like ninety percent? <laughs> yeah, look, I. <laughs> you don't want to be doing that in Kabul. Um, and he was very much like, oh, nah, it's all right. It's just working out too hard, and I'm, and I'm like, no, yeah. can't take that risk. So, uh, but he he was very good. Unfortunately, uh, he never returned to the contract. Um, he did have uh, some dilation. Um, there was no leak, but it's, it's very lucky we got it. It taught me a, a, a few lessons about what I would have to do and what our actual, the reality of our medical response was going to be in country, which um, helped me later on down the line. Because we did have a few hairy moments. One particular one was a, a massive uh, truck bomb. Um, it was a septic truck um, full to the hilt with uh, explosives, um, and that truck drove into Kabul on the 31st of May 2017, somehow got through the outer perimeters and drove right up to the T-wall of the green zone. I think it was around about 8.30 in the morning um, at the peak hour of traffic, and it essentially detonated right next to the T-wall um, uh, where the German embassy was. To give a bit of context, uh, that truck bomb took out about 150 Afghans, wounded another um, 400 plus. And, it, and if you think about those numbers and try and put all those people in one city block, you can kind of picture how busy yeah. that area was when it went off. Blew in the T-wall. I think it's, um, it injured a few uh, of the German embassy staff. For us, we were approximately 800 metres away and the shockwave hit us. I remember sitting in the, um, the essentially the, the point of contact control centre and uh, getting hit with the shockwave and all the, the piles of the false ceiling fell in. A few of our diplomats got blown over. They were um, caught in sort of doorways or, or hallways yeah. where there was a pressure gradient and they were blown over. And then we went into sort of lockdown mode. Uh, several minutes later, we were expecting potential casualties to rock up at our checkpoints, and we did. We had a, a, two Australian journalists or reporters, um, passport holders that rocked up at our checkpoint, uh, having had received concussion and, and shrapnel injuries. So I was, I was asked to attend to them. Couldn't really do much um, for their their hearing. They'd um, had some sensitivity to their um, eardrum and a few uh, minor shrapnel injuries. But I think uh, the shock itself was more of a an injury, and they were feeling very um, thankful that they were alive. Um, yeah, and uh, pretty shaken. And, and many of our diplomats after that incident um, returned to Australia to never come back. Yeah, we patched them up, gave them a bit of advice, sent them on their way as they they went uh, immediately unwell. And we had other priorities, being the security matters that were were taking um, that were taking place. Were you tempted to want to go forward and help? Obviously, this is a terrorism event, and there's hundreds of casualties, and the risk of secondary devices going off is really high definitely you um, also know just up the road there's hundreds of people that could probably do with a bit of advanced first aid 
to save their lives. Yeah, look, it definitely um, was a consideration wanted to, to go out there and help. I think uh, in that circumstance, I was very much, uh, I was wearing two hats, um, being the medic, but also being responsible for security of one of the, the yeah. residences. So I, I couldn't abandon the immediate need, which essentially was what I was there for, which was looking after the diplomats. We did experience a, a slow flow of um, injured people or people that had minor shrapnel burn, uh, injuries present to one or two of our three checkpoints. Essentially, the guys that we were working with had all received some level of first aid training and were providing whatever care they could. But if they weren't an Australian um, passport holder, we were very much limited to what we could do with them. Uh, that meant we weren't able to bring them into the facility or provide shelter or care. We essentially had to patch them up um, and then send them uh, onto the, the health facility, either being the, the local um, health facility or to um, the airport, the military side, well, three. So, yeah, that was, that was a, a massive... Um, massive truck blast and huge incident. Pieces of that truck were found at our embassy, as well as a few other facilities, because uh, it was just a, just been dispersed all over the city. And the crater, I think I've got a photo of it. Was at least you know um, ten meters deep. It was just incredible how much power was involved in that. So later on. At the tail end of my time in, in Kabul at the embassy, I uh, was finishing up my degree. I was keen to come back to Australia and, and get employment as a paramedic with one of the state services. So in 2020, uh, I managed to secure employment with the ACT Ambulance Service. And that essentially meant that I had to, had to leave the embassy uh, to go do that full time. I very much had the intent to leave, go finish my grad program, get some time on road, but also to come back to, to Kabul to return to the embassy because it was such a good life. I loved my mates there. I loved the, the job and um, I didn't want to give that up. But unfortunately, COVID hit to start. So uh, I was a grad on road with the ACT ambulance while um, the pandemic was breaking out. I think it was quite fortuitous that I left when I did because a lot of my mates that were at the embassy got caught there as the international uh, borders and lockdowns started taking an effect. Taking effect. Um, they were just unable to fly out, including the diplomats um, in, the, in the early months. Um, so uh, I, I have a few mates that were stuck in country for several months um, before they were able to get any relief. Meanwhile, from my perspective, I, I started as a grad with the ACT Ambulance Service and was um, <laughs> enjoyed maybe two weeks on road where there was a, a lower tempo of calls and jobs coming through before it quickly escalated. We were dealing with um, the usual the usual caseload. I guess it wasn't until 2021 when we started to see the actual waves of COVID propagate through uh, the community and at the same time, we saw the events taking place in Kabul. Because I hadn't been there in twenty, in, in the year of 2020, I wasn't present to, to watch the embassy sort of downsize 
mothball their their um, diplomatic um, missions and sort of reduce their footprint. The Australian Embassy shut um, prior to the prior to the twenty twenty one collapse of the Afghan government. So, from my perspective, back in Australia, it was a, it was a tough time um, watching. Um, the events take place on the news in Kabul mm. um, very much felt um, uh, conflicting emotions about uh, what was going on there. Um, definitely a bit of anger, a bit of sadness for the, the people. Kind of just was wishing that it hadn't gone down the way it did and that I was still over there. But um, I think like many Afghan vets, it was something we had to kind of uh, wrestle with and expect. I think for many, they didn't really see how, how the conflict was going to end. Um, I don't think we thought it was going to end in such a terrible manner, um, but uh, sadly it did. Yeah, and you're probably not alone there um, with those sort of conflicting views. The Afghan probably got under my skin as it, as it did yours too, and you spent a lot more time there than I ever did, so... I think in total I spent about five years yeah. in and out of the country. Yeah. Um, so at that time I'd made friends with Afghan contractors and guards and, you know, they were, uh, I'd say, a, a large portion over the last two, oh, two three years have been, um, uh, well, so, sorry, since the collapse have been relocated to Australia, but during the initial months, I remember getting messages on uh, Facebook from people that were stuck there that were mates and um, trying to to pass on their information to DFAT to try and help them yeah. because it was just, it was absolute chaos. These people were fighting for their lives. They were definitely a target for having worked with the, the, um, the Europeans, the NATO forces. Yeah, the evacuation of Kabul. I mean, we remember those images on the news not long ago. Mm. That was that was a, a shit fight, really. Yeah, yeah. People trying to get through those layers and, and get their documents checked so that they could get out. Like, and having yeah. spoken to my mates who were over there, I think that it's, it's a common thread of people just being quite um, uh, depressed or, or um, uh, conflicted about what happened considering how many years we were in there or how many mates that have lost their their life literal um, mm-hmm. blood spent yep. trying to establish a, a democracy and uh, a functioning state uh, nation so they all just disappear and evaporate in the, um, in the space of a few days, a few weeks yeah uh, lost your mates, uh, lost limbs lost your health uh, or your mind for what was um, progress that was quickly reversed. So, so yeah, since then I've, I've been working with the ACT Ambulance Service. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm a paramedic. I'm, a, I'm also a sessional lecturer at ACU. I, I think after a while I started to get itchy feet. I'm, I'm definitely someone who likes um, to travel and, and likes a bit of adventure and a change of scenery in 2022 i started to see the events unfolding in ukraine i guess that invoked a few other emotions similar to to what happened in afghan i was i was keen to to help out um i i think most most people would agree that it was really shocking to see on the um 
on the news the events of, of the Russian troops uh, invasion. Yeah. And so having, you know, medical capabilities and not having any any children or any immediate um, ties to to not to prevent me going over there, I, I sat down with my, my partner and we discussed potentially doing, uh, well, for me to do a, a deployment to Ukraine and um, provide medical assistance. I definitely uh, was keen to get in there as a humanitarian and separate myself from the fighting and just focus on the healthcare. My days of carrying um, carrying a, a, a long gun are over and I definitely see my life now as a, as a clinician. And I wanted to go over there and, and help out, essentially. So I started looking for NGOs that would take me on and uh, my partner, because in the early early months it was very much touch and go, and we were thought, thinking, is this the next big conflict? Should we sit on it? And so I waited about four months um, before I was successful in getting um, a position with an NGO called FrontlineMedics.org. They were a small NGO that was in its infancy. I collected a whole heap of resources here in, in Canberra and, and essentially jumped on a plane and flew over to Poland where I um, inserted into into Ukraine via the border not far from Lviv. Moved into uh, Dnipro where the headquarters was set up and we then from there started doing medical evacuation. Um, the NGO three main responsibilities that they were running um, being uh, a pop-up clinic uh, in the liberated areas, medical evacuation, uh, and then healthcare at one of the sort of um, displaced, internally displaced refugee camps. Um, and uh, as far as conflicts go, I think I saw more trauma in the six weeks of my deployment uh, in in Ukraine than I had in my entire career, being between being a soldier and a, and a medic in um, in Canberra, the just sheer quantity of of patients coming through was incredible, and uh, we were able to operate within about fifteen to twenty kilometres of the front line, um, essentially receiving the influx of of uh, refugees uh, fleeing westward. And we would receive them, start providing assistance, and then facilitating their evacuation to the refugee processing centres. So you're seeing kids, you're seeing old people, yeah, all walks of life with existing medical problems, fleeing that conflict, and also trauma. Yeah, that's it. So we, we our primary focus was on the civilian population. We... Mostly in the early weeks, we're operating around the town of Kupiansk, which is essentially a, a town based on a, a water feature, a river that runs north to south. The uh, Ukrainians had had quite um, a successful counteroffensive as they were pushing the, the Russians out. And the, as the Russians were escaping, they were um, blowing all the bridges on that river. Uh, at Kupiansk, they'd, um, they'd blown the bridge, but they hadn't blown the pedestrian footpath. Um, so 
while vehicles couldn't cross over, the refugees could come to that bridge, walk over, and then be received by all the um, humanitarian NGOs. So we were seeing um, women, children, the old babushkas that were immobile being carried out or um, in wheelchairs. And we were essentially dealing with a, a mix of, of trauma but also un, um, untreated medical conditions that um, these people had essentially been under occupation for several months. Um, they hadn't had any access to health care. Prior to that, um, prior to the invasion, they had limited access to healthcare, but they still could get medications and see a doctor. After the invasion, they had pretty much none. Any clinicians, doctors, um, anybody with resources and capability that could flee um, Westwood in the early days had done so. And so only the low socioeconomic, elderly or infirmed were essentially stuck there. Uh, until we receive them so we we had a ton of people coming through you can picture the uh the third world kind of infections and wounds that we were experiencing some some of them had just festering festering wounds that had been managed at home with maybe a bit of bit of paper towel and a few makeshift bandages we did have one one lady present to us that had been cut up by a piece of shrapnel and she managed to approach the Russians um, and one Russian had stitched her up. Um, this laceration uh, on her leg was about 10 centimetres long and I think she got about four sutures. Um, so you can imagine the train tracks that were uh, coming for her. Funnily enough, the, the Russian soldier that, or medic that had stitched her up had taken the finger of a glove um, a latex glove, cut the tip off it, cut it off the, the palm and inserted the, the tube-like finger as a bit of a makeshift drain. Yeah. Uh, I believe the intent there was to provide drainage and then take that out and have some follow-on care, but she never received any follow-on care. So by the time we received her, it had been in there for about six weeks and it uh, it turned into this um, festering infection. Yeah. Um, but a few other few other crazy moments on the on the deployment um, at the at the bridge. Uh, I remember at one point we were sitting there, sort of late in the evening, expecting more civilians to come in when we could see airburst shelling in the sky over the town, uh, about five to ten kilometers away um, to the east. And at that point, I think that's that's when I realised, oh shit, we are way too close. Either the, the front line, which is, is an ambiguous term in itself, had changed or we had now, we had now gotten uh, yeah, t- too close to, to what we were comfortable to do. So uh, we quickly <laughs> jumped in the ambulance, moved uh, a bit further away and then started drawing up medication, expecting an influx of, of patients um, the air bursts were all incendiary, and you could see it falling on the town from the, the higher um, elevation of, of the um, West Bank. Thankfully, only a small handful of patients presented over the bridge after that shelling. Um, none of them had any major injuries. I think there was one that had a bit of burns on their on their lower legs. But for the most part, when the um, shelling came in, 
the civilian population had sought shelter in their bunkers. Um, a, a lot of the um, a lot of the houses in, in eastern Ukraine still have basements which they were using for shelter. Um, but the, the medications that we'd drawn up in haste, expecting a, a mass casualty influx, uh, ended up not really being utilised. And that was an important learning point for me from a remote medicine kind of standpoint that um, you do have to be conscious of the resources that you have and you can't draw things up or use them uh, based on assumptions. Yeah. Um, that evening, after those patients came through, we, we stopped by at the um, Kupiansk Hospital, picked up a, a few civilians. When I say a few, we packed 11 women and children uh, into a, into the ambulance, an old Welsh green and yellow box ambulance, and headed off uh, back to uh, the refugee processing centre. And that night, that same hospital was shelled to the point that uh, it would never reopen. A few nurses lost their, their life, um, but we were very lucky that we got out the, um, the civilians and the, the children that we, um, we had. So it was a further reinforcement that what we were doing was having a, a, a very positive effect for those that we were influencing. I have so many questions. Like, you're there with an NGO. What's the security like? Where are you getting your intel and your comms? Where the patients are? You're obviously not in a PMV or an armoured vehicle. You're in an old Welsh ambulance. <laughs> how are you doing your own security, your own comms? How how does the organisation work in a war zone? Look, it's... it's um. I guess the, the smaller NGOs, depending on, on who you go with, they they vary in the level of organisation that they have um, and it is very dependent on the funding that they have. Um, for frontlinemedics.org at that time, they didn't have a large footprint. I think the organisation itself maybe had a, a workforce of a dozen medics, nurses and doctors. And so, we yeah, we're just rolling around in a donated Welsh ambulance um, still with the, the Welsh language um, signs inside. And uh, we um, would essentially pick up our medication from our Ukrainian doctor, Dr. Alina, who um, was an anaesthetist. And through her, because she was our medical director, we derived our sort of authority. We would throw a whole heap of these medications in and... Uh, whatever medical supplies we could scrounge from the donations that were finally reaching the Eastern Front. You remember like a ton of donations were coming in from governments but as well as non-government entities. They were all flowing into Lviv and, and Kiev but to a point they would be stockpiled in the West especially in the early days because there was the assumption that oh, we don't know where this conflict's going to go, we might need it. So they'd stockpile. So very little um, would actually reach the, the eastern side of the country where we would get hold of it. Um, so we were, we were definitely in a resource-poor environment. Security and, and sort of intelligence, it was all just coming from open-source uh, intel. Um, we uh, would collaborate with some of the larger NGOs, MSF and Red Cross, and we would receive uh, information packets from them, but as well as just sharing of information on chat groups of, of regions that were safe or, or there was a need uh, at certain areas. 
and so as for safety it's all pretty much dependent on on the a the few bits of body armor and helmet and kevlar helmets that you could get hold of but also the information and the, the risk tolerance that you were willing to accept so we tried to implement a bit of a a risk assessment um, process and, and mission planning process, but in a in a in the fog of war and in the uh, confusion, it was really hard to tell where the front line had maybe moved to in the in the days. So, yeah, look, it was it was a bit of a crazy um, grey environment to operate in. Uh, we would go to the hospitals, the the civilian and military hospitals take them supplies and then if they needed to transport civilians backwards to the um, the facilities further westward we would then facilitate that at some points we were we were taking upwards of six to eight patients walking wounded and see um, laying wounded just to get them out of out of the front line where they were just swamped with with patients wow hmm. so every day would look very different and you're just responding to what information you have in terms of trying to pick people up and get them rewarded of the fighting. Yeah, look. Uh, yeah, without getting yourself into too much of a compromising position. That's it. And as a, as a former defence member I, I'm and contractor, I, I'm used to an environment where there's a lot of planning, rigidity, um, funding. Yeah. AME available if you get hurt yourself and yeah uh, in this scenario there was nothing there was um it was very much uh, a volunteer workforce doing what they were comfortable to do I guess what made frontlinemedics.org different was that we had just clinicians and so it was very useful when we'd have a clinician come in that was ex-defense that could kind of read read the room and and add that level of planning mission planning that you don't necessarily get taught as a base paramedic or a nurse um, in, a, in a civilian health facility. So we definitely also got into this routine of, in addition to planning, when you get out to the front, you would read the, the vibe of the civilians and the soldiers and be like, okay, and the tempo of artillery in the background. Like if you, you get there and it's everything's up, everyone's a bit anxious, there's a higher tempo, you could feel that. It was very palpable and you'd have to decide, okay, well, I'm not sure we're, we're having the best day and maybe we should fall back to a, a safer distance and, and find meaningful work in a safer environment. How did you go with the language barriers and navigating as well? Yeah, uh, Google Translate gets you to a point. We'd learn a few phrases. We did. I definitely found that the clinicians, like your, the Ukrainian doctors, had a quite high level of uh, English, and most of the young as well had some level of of English that they could communicate with us um, more than I had Ukrainian. That's for sure. It was your older population, your older demographic that didn't really have any. So in those circumstances when we were doing the pop-up clinic and we'd have an influx of patients, we would have to, you know, get through, you'd have to pantomime what they're feeling. We'd learn a few phrases for symptoms. For example, pain uh, is bullet in, in Ukrainian. So you could point and say, 
bullet yeah. that painful you could pantomime vomiting like mm. things like that and you did essentially have to rely a lot on your um, your visual signs uh, as opposed to reported symptoms but look in the tail end of my deployment we were also assisting moving patients from <laughs> from uh Dnipro and Kharkiv to the uh the larger cities of of uh, sorry, Dnipro and um, Kharkiv to Lviv and Kiev. And I remember <laughs> I remember we got asked to transport this lovely lady um, from uh, Kharkiv to um, Lviv and she had quite advanced dementia, although that wasn't exactly communicated to us. So we, we went to the train station. Trains were essentially a major um, thoroughfare and uh, evacuation route, uh, means of transport for the civilians. So we got there. She had been essentially carried by her family onto the train, then trained to Kharkiv. We received her at the train station and they said, well, look, we can't, we can't manage her on the train. Um, she's got toileting needs. Um, she can't walk. She's, there's nowhere to lay on the train. Can you can you take her? And so we were more than happy to do that. Not speaking Ukrainian, we couldn't really establish what her mental attitude was and how orientated she was. She was absolutely lovely talking with us uh, while we were with her family, but eventually they had to get back on the train to go uh, and we had to step off for the the 12-hour drive that we were about to do. Um, So once we had her in the back of the ambulance... She very quickly forgot what was going on and what had been said to her. Started essentially <laughs> going, "Who? I, I believe not speaking Ukrainian, saying, who are you? What's going on? Where am I? Yeah, who are you, crazy people, looking after me?'" And we, it was just myself and a Norwegian between the two of us. I think we spoke maybe a dozen Ukrainian phrases. That was not enough. <laughs> so we headed off and and um it was just a comedy of errors of her <laughs> shouting at us and and yeah. um, um like at one point um we tr- through broken google translate established she needed to go to the toilet and so we stopped uh, at a service station and we the two of us had to carry her into the service station and this this bemused and quite confused attendant was going like what the heck is going on here who are you what is happening and (laughs) the uh ukrainian um babushka she was apparently shouting to the attendant that we're two crazy westerners trying to kidnap her um (laughs) so we we got on the phone we called up our doctor alina who was a um Ukrainian we mm. put her on the phone um, speaker and she started doing live translate for us which was a bit of a godsend yeah um, kind of didn't really help the situation because as soon as we finished toileting her she didn't actually have to go in the end um, but once we finished that we we got on the road and uh, I think she promptly forgot everything as well mm. um, that was a long 12 hour drive 12 um, hours. And it was just absolutely crazy yeah um, but, but how terrifying the... for her, like, yeah, like in her mind. Like, Alzheimer's is scary if you're just in an unfamiliar environment, but she is away from everyone she knows with two people that don't speak her language. And, of course, that she's going to go off a tree. Like, 
Yeah. Yeah. And what, these these conditions don't stop just because there's a war on. No. Um, you know, health conditions are going to just continue on within the population. So, yeah, and that family, um, you know, they kudos to them that they had put such an amazing effort in trying to get her out of there. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's the civilians that always lose out in in these war zones. So how fantastic you could be there to help in that way. Yeah. It was a look, yeah. it was a incredible experience. I took a lot away from it from a, a clinical point of view. I think selfishly I did go there to to see what the health system was like under those those circumstances and see the clinicians working in that environment so I could in addition to wanting to help out, experience that life. And uh, I'm very thankful to have been, having been able to go, having such a lovely partner that um, was in, um, supportive of me going over. I, I have no intentions of going back, sadly. I think my partner deserves me here for now. Um, I do can still work with um, frontline medics. I do um, some administrative work for them, but... Uh, at this stage, I'm just continuing my work as a paramedic and studying and teaching. What do you think are the biggest challenges in terms of healthcare in, in Ukraine now? Oh, super broad question. It's, it's but... a, yeah, it's a very broad question. But I, I think they're, they've come leaps and bounds. In, in From a military perspective, they have developed into this sort of 21st century uh, military organization they have health um, structures in place for their soldiers that are quite effective they're getting a lot of assistance um, from the west i'm not entirely certain that that's being then passed on to the civilian population although the fronts are a lot more static there haven't been huge shifts i think the last huge shift has been since the the um, withdrawal of the russians in Kherson. the the country i guess it still needs basic medical supplies and ultimately funding and, and expertise training for their um, their their clinicians and their specialists the civilian population thankfully have been able to evacuate themselves from the fighting and get inwards but there is a huge population of internally displaced people some are still uh, residing at refugee centers you know in in the basement of shopping centers or in the metro systems from a healthcare perspective it's it's a it's such a diverse need of of clinical resources as well as people yeah, I'm not sure I could sum it up with just, oh, this is the one item we need. I guess if you had to do that, you'd say diesel. Everything runs on diesel mm. or, or petrol, and particularly from a, a pre-hospital ambulance sort of perspective, you can't do any operations without petrol, and, and essentially that is just money donations. Jack, absolutely fascinating pathway through your career, which, you know, is only just beginning really uh and you've certainly put yourself out there into some really unique and austere environments so thanks for sharing those little pearls of wisdom with us and thank you for your service thank you so much emma for having me on it's a it's an, it's an absolute honor to be able to speak to your audience it, it's a, an amazing world that we operate in and the people that live in this sort of austere uh, environment uh, medical world are some of the best out there so 
Thank you. Uh, I'll leave it at that. It's been a pleasure.